0: Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folkham.
2: Well, welcome to September and another episode of Talking Biotech. And this week we're going to do things a little bit different. Um, Not only did we have Diamond Dave, David Lee Roth, Scream After Norman Borlaug, which I think is a podcast first, Um, we also will do things a little bit backwards because it makes sense sometimes. So today's episode is really about tomato innovations and we'll talk a lot about a new innovation which has tremendous benefit. It's currently in deregulation or at least being investigated and it's a gene from pepper that's being used in tomato to mitigate the effects of bacterial disease which turns out to be a significant problem that's very difficult for traditional breeders to solve. So we'll start out by explaining the problem. And we'll start out with a traditional breeder, Dr. Sam Hutton, who is a colleague of mine here at the University of Florida. And then the second half of the podcast, we'll meet with Diana Horvath from uh, Two Blades Foundation. And Two Blades is uh, working on developing and testing the tomato, which bears a gene from pepper that leads to at least some level of resistance or tolerance to bacterial spot, one of the worst diseases of tomato. So a really interesting episode today if you're interested in uh, tomatoes and uh, where they come from and how they're grown in our breeding priorities and some new innovations that can make growing them so much easier. So here we go with our interview with Dr. Sam Hutton. So with us on the Talking Biotech podcast today, it's, it's really kind of a special guest. Uh, just because it's somebody I know pretty well, he actually works in my department uh, and so we'll talk to Dr. Sam Hutton. And Dr. Sam Hutton is a assistant professor down at the Gulf Coast Research and uh, Education Center in Balm, Florida, just outside of Tampa. And uh, Sam and I work about uh, two and a half hours apart. Um, the reason I wanted to have him on, aside from his tomato expertise, is that Sam was recently on the uh, Al Jazeera America television show, Techno, and uh, did a beautiful job talking about uh, what he does and and the relevance of genetic engineering to what he does. But today we'll focus more on traditional tomato breeding. So welcome, uh, Dr. Hutton.
1: Hey, thanks. Happy to be here.
2: Yes, so uh, this is really nice to have you on. And I think this part of the uh, podcast, I usually like to talk about tomato, or well, a crop, and some of its origins. So could you start out by telling us a little bit about where does tomato come from in time and space?
1: Yeah, sure. So pretty much all the tomatoes, their ancestors go back to the Andean region of South America. And we're talking about uh, Ecuador, Peru, and Chile. And, And from there, it seems like the process of domestication Uh, began and in that area they were looking uh domesticated mainly on the basis of fruit weight so the size of the fruit and then uh, they kind of migrated from there into the mesoamerica region and in that area there was more selection for different fruit shapes and things primarily um, as well as fruit size also and it wasn't until after that that tomatoes made their way to the new world um and i guess uh made their way to Italy first, and then eventually came back to America as a cultivated crop.
2: Okay, so if you look at some of the wild tomatoes and the stuff that maybe even exists to this day that lend their traits to the domesticated tomato, what are some of the wild ones, or what do they look like? What were the starting points that uh, that those who domesticated the crop, what did they have to start with?
1: Um, most of these plants were pretty uh, sparsely set, with fruit, they don't have a heavy density of fruit. Uh, mainly, the flowering is scattered around, uh, maybe a big burst of flowering, but on lots of clusters. The plants are indeterminate, um, like like a lot of the heirlooms would be. The vines keep growing and growing. Um, you'd find these in various areas, various climates, and they're pretty hardy. Really, really small fruited, um, and primarily uh, green fruited or Um, perhaps yellow-fruited or orange-fruited or something, but uh, most of the red-fruited stuff is more of that domesticated type. And and the red-fruited, as I understand,
2: came from a single wild species, right?
1: Right, right. And so, yeah, then you're starting to get into uh, things like folium*. That's one of the relatives of tomato. That's the closest ancestor to uh, what we grow now as cultivated tomato, is that Solanum folium.
2: And, and so Pimpinilla folium, this one is different because at least from what I've seen on this, they grow as vines on the, on the ground and they have these little tiny red berries and that that redness was the source for all other tomatoes downstream. And, that, and the red is accumulation of which pigments?
1: Uh, that would be mainly lycopene there. Um, there's some beta carotene in there as well. But yeah, those um, really small fruit, little pea-sized fruit on most of those.
2: Well, and they, and they don't taste very good either, which is really interesting. I know we've uh, played with some of the wild tomatoes up here, and one of the predominant essences that's emitted from a wild tomato fruit, one of them is uh, uh, phenylacetaldehyde, acid- which is one of the primary components of cat urine <laughs> and, and uh, makes for some delicious pasta sauce. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think some breeders have
1: done a lot of good work trying to uh, get better flavor into the tomatoes compared to those wild relatives. So, Sam,
2: how did you get started in plant breeding? And maybe tell me a little bit about where you grew up and some of your interests in plants and uh, in farming.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I grew up in Mississippi on a small family farm. Um, hard work, but I loved it. All my life, I, was, I remember working with my dad. Um, when I was really little, just riding around with him, um checking on folks that were out driving tractors and stuff. but then, I guess somewhere around nine or ten years old, I ended up on a tractor. I would have to jump out of the seat to push the brake pedals on there to to help turn or something um Those are some of my earliest memories. I had a great time working for him um every summer, and the older I got um the more of a vested interest I felt like I had like this is this is my family's living that I'm helping with here. Um, and it wasn't always easy. There were lots of years that uh, we didn't know how it could turn out. There were lots of years that it was pretty bad. Um, the older I got, the more I, I realized the difference that a plant variety can make. Uh, we would see farms that had one variety, and the yields would be great compared to other farms that had a different variety, and they had poorer yields. And I guess that was kind of that sparked an interest there for variety to development. And then I ended up getting introduced to the field of plant breeding during an internship I did one summer during college. And that, that seemed awfully intriguing to me. And so uh, I pursued a career in that, but all throughout my life growing up on those cotton soybean farms, uh, working in the rice field. Um, one of my favorite things to do is work in the garden. Um, We had a pretty large garden. I grew a lot of tomatoes there, and I always had an interest and a love for growing tomatoes. Um, Even during my master's degree, when I was studying soybean breeding at University of Minnesota, uh, one of my highlights was in the summers, I would have a garden plot, and other graduate students and I would compete for who could grow the largest tomato. Um, So it it was a great time, a lot of good memories there. When I started looking around for a Ph.D. program to pursue, Um, Tomatoes was the first thing that came to my mind. I found this program here at University of Florida and came down and everything's worked out since then. Here I am working uh, in my dream job, essentially.
2: What are the major objectives or your priorities for your program?
1: Yeah, so here in the state, uh, we have a really large tomato industry and my position uh, is really aimed at catering to that industry and trying to get new varieties out there that would help make Uh, those farmers' lives more profitable, uh, more productive, more sustainable. And so we're working on developing varieties that um, would essentially yield better and more reliably across different environments. They would have higher yields, uh, better characteristics of fruit, perhaps that's fruit size, perhaps it's color, flavor, um, qualities like that. Um, Really good disease resistance packages Uh, That's to help with that reliability of yield so that um, a pest comes in, a white fly insect comes in and spreads virus around. Well, we need virus resistance to try to maintain good yields in light of that. Um, And then um, the fruit have to be marketable on top of that. So they've got to be blemish free. They've got to be firm enough to sustain the rigors of shipping uh, to get them to their final destination, whether that's... um, a grocery store, a fruit stand, or if it's on top of a hamburger at your local Walmart, uh, local McDonald's.
2: Yeah, I guess that was maybe an interesting question that I've heard before. That many of the tomatoes that come from our state are destined for food service, and uh, that that a tomato needs to have X number of slices, you know, the proper size. And so, how much of a how much of of that is true? Uh, that's pretty
1: accurate. Most of the tomatoes grown here in the state are for food service. And if we're talking about Burger King, McDonald's, Subway, places like that, they want certain size tomatoes. Uh, Subway likes their tomatoes just slightly smaller than the burger places because they've got the more narrow sandwiches that they put them on, um, whereas McDonald's and Burger King want a larger fruit to slice on there. Um, and, yeah, they're all. it's a mature green industry. The fruit are picked green. Uh, where they're mature, they're just about to start turning ripe and they're treated with the plant hormone ethylene to initiate that ripening process in a more controlled way so that these things can be shipped to their destinations and arrive um, without bruising and without damage.
2: And you, you raised the, the H word of hormone which I know for um, the listenership for this podcast Sometimes can raise a, a question because you think, oh, you're treating fruits with hormones. But ethylene is the gaseous plant growth regulator that, um, that is also used to, to encourage ripening in bananas and other fruits. So really what you're saying is that the tomatoes are picked green and shipped because that way they don't bruise. And then when they get to like a intermediate origin or like a packing house or something, they are gassed. Is that how that works?
1: Yeah, it's very much like that, and it's a little bit similar to the banana industry that you mentioned. Uh, Bananas are picked green and gassed with ethylene, Um, and by the way, that's just a natural plant hormone. If we left the fruit on the plant, um, ethylene would be produced, and that's what would initiate the ripening process of those fruit that remain on the plant. So it's, it's an artificial way of doing something that would have happened anyway.
2: Oh, very good. Now, um, What about some of the other big challenges to the Florida industry? When you think about growing them here in this state, what, what are the growers up against?
1: Well, this is, uh, from my perspective as a plant breeder, uh, this is a great place to be breeding tomatoes because there's all sorts of challenges here. Um, here in Florida, we've got a subtropical environment. Uh, many winters, we won't even get a freeze that will kill insects, and so our insects can overwinter. And spread disease around the next season. It's a very humid environment. We have a lot of rainfall, especially this time of year, which is it's fall. It's getting into the fall here. Afternoon rains um, as the planter as the growers are putting their crops in the field. Um, Those plants get a a lot of moisture on them, which is really encouraging for uh, bacterial diseases. So we have viruses, we have bacteria, we have fungal diseases here as well. All right, so our growers are um, also having to face challenges with rising prices for the supplies that they use, whether that's fuel, equipment, uh, plastic, fertilizer, um, things like this. And then uh, labor that they use to pick this crop, to uh, grow, to plant, to train the crop up the stakes is getting harder to come by and it's getting more expensive as well. So it's plenty of challenges to work, for, uh, work towards.
2: And when you talk about uh, plastic... I know a lot of people don't know what they hear plastic mulch they think that it's the old tires that they put in their front yard. Um, what, what is plastic mulch used for in a Florida environment?
1: Yeah so all of our beds that we grow on in the field are covered with this plastic mulch. Thin sheets of plastic um, hundreds of yards long that are unrolled as they as the beds are formed and shaped and as the beds are made they're also fumigated in most cases. And the plastic holds that fumigant in so that it can do its job and keep it from getting out into the environment. And then uh, oftentimes um, some drip tape or some uh, irrigation tubing is placed up under that plastic. That's how the plants are um, watered as they're growing. And then often uh, fertilizer is also placed under that plastic. So it just sets up this environment of protecting Um, Protecting the soil, keeping the soil from splashing up on the plants, which would encourage disease. Keeping the fertilizer from leaching away from the soil by keeping the rain off of that. Um, And keeping that fumigant in to to kill uh, insects, to kill weeds, to kill diseases under there.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't think that most people really understand where their tomatoes come from. And those kind of supermarket, you know, McDonald's, Burger King tomatoes, this is a really interesting production system that's entirely artificial. We're growing our plants down here in uh, sand, basically, that's covered with plastic where you can fumigate to get rid of all the critters that are in there and then have your plants growing in this almost a hydroponic environment. And it's a, it's a really interesting way to grow plants, but a, it gives a certain level of uniformity and a very well-understood production methods. And so what are some of the other big challenges right now for, let's say, the Florida industry and your job as a breeder?
1: Yeah, so some of our biggest challenges um, that I can really address as a breeder have to do with all these diseases we get in Florida. Um, I mentioned the rainy weather that we experience as we're putting our crops out in the fall, and that's encouraging diseases such as bacterial spot. Uh, This bacteria has been around ever since production has been here in Florida, and we can spray different bactericides to try to control it, but there's really nothing that works very well. Um, Copper is something that's been used in the past as a bactericide, and it used to work pretty well, but pretty much every strain we have in Florida now has resistance to copper, so that doesn't do much good. Uh, In the past, we used antibiotics to treat for these bacteria. That worked beautifully, except that the bacteria can overcome uh, those antibiotics. They can build up resistance to them very quickly, and they did. And so those are no longer used. And we really have not very much in our arsenal that we can use for controlling this bacterial disease. And when conditions are favorable for disease, the growers lose yield. They they spray, they try to manage their disease the best they can culturally. They don't send their workers out there to tie the plants up when the plants are wet because that would spread the disease around. But there's still not much they can do. And they just get to watch their plants get devastated by this disease. They, they essentially watch their yields drop uh, when conditions are favorable. That's one of our biggest things to work on here. And uh, it's been a challenge working on that.
2: And I guess the other big priority of your program. I know there's been a focus uh, between you and uh, Dr. J. Scott, your predecessor, um, on uh, virus resistance too. So what, what is the major viral problem?
1: Yeah, so the biggest virus problem we have here in Florida is a virus called tomato yellow leaf curl virus. This is a Gemini virus, and there are other Gemini viruses that are quite similar to this, uh, but this is the most well-known gemini virus it's all around the world essentially it started i believe it started in israel um but it's essentially spread everywhere it's in south america it's in asia it's in australia it's in the philippines it's all over the place um and it's a big problem in warmer climates where those white flies that i mentioned earlier um, can overwinter especially but where they get to be a serious problem where it's really warm and they have a long season of reproduction those are the vectors of this virus tomato, yellow, leaf curl virus. And so to fight against this, um, you can spray and try to control that insect vector. Um, If you're growing in greenhouses or under some type of netting, you can try to keep that vector out. Or if you're in the open field as we are, then we try to develop varieties with resistance to the viruses. And that's what we've done mostly is gone to wild species of tomato and found wild species that are resistant to these viruses and try to get those resistance genes into cultivated tomato.
2: So you're actually going to wild species, which we talked about are these uh, vines on the ground with little tiny berries that taste like cat pee. And (laughs) now you're trying to get those genes for the resistance into elite tomato backgrounds that have all of the desirable characteristics of uh, good tomatoes. So can you give me an idea of how difficult it is to move that little suite of genes to a uh, elite background without all of the genes you don't want?
1: Boy, this is, um, yeah, I can. It's, it's not an easy process in general. Um, it gets quite complicated. So all these different wild species of tomatoes that we could potentially use, some of them are more similar to tomato, and we can cross-pollinate those quite easily. Some of them are more distantly related to cultivated tomato, and it's more of a challenge to cross those. And And what I mean by challenge is, okay, we can take pollen from our wild tomato and apply it to our cultivated tomato and try to get seed, but usually with those really distant crosses, those wide crosses, the seed will just abort before it ever matures. So we would have to go in, after we make that pollination, And way before the seed are mature, do an embryo rescue type technique. So it's almost like doing surgery, using tissue culture, getting those embryo, those seed embryos out and putting them out on tissue culture to try to grow them out into plants from that point. Because if we leave them in the fruit, they just abort, they'll die. Um, So that's one of the techniques we've used in the past is this embryo rescue to try to get these crosses. And that's just the starting point. Once you get that seedling to grow, then you've got to grow it into a mature plant. And this thing's half wild tomato, half cultivated tomato. It doesn't really want to set seed itself, so you have to make another cross. Oftentimes, we're stuck trying to do embryo rescue a second time. And we will essentially keep doing this process. We'll get away from the embryo rescue eventually, and we'll keep crossing back to cultivated tomato We'll grow the plants out, inoculate them with the virus, try to find the ones that are resistant, and then pick them and make another cross again. And that process continues, and you keep trying to get rid of those wild tomato characteristics that you'll see in the plant sometimes and select those plants that have a more cultivated tomato look and taste, hopefully. Um, and the, it's a lot of work this, um, for this particular virus, TYLCV, tomato yellow leaf curl virus. The work began in the early to mid-1990s, and we've only just gotten to the point now. Here it is, 2015. Just in the last few years, we think we've gotten rid of all those wild tomato characteristics that were associated with one or two of these genes. Some of the genes, we still haven't gotten rid of all those negative characteristics that came out of the wild plants. It's um, It's been an ongoing process. And it's nice to see the fruit of our labors now, but it's been a, a lot of hard work to get here.
2: And that's what's pretty remarkable to me as, uh, as somebody who thinks about biotechnology applications, that uh, the ability to move a single gene instead of doing this by crossing and rescuing embryos and doing all these uh, grand overtures to be able to get the same concept. Um, but I know your lab also uses a lot of marker-assisted breeding, and how does that work? to assist this process
1: well that using the markers in that way helps us to know what we're tracking help us to track those plants that are going to be resistant along the way so the markers we're talking about in this case are some that are pretty close um ideally very close to the resistant gene resistance gene that we're after and so we can use these markers just to identify those plants carrying the gene and that's That's great. It can also speed up that process of getting rid of those wild characteristics. And so if we have all these markers around a resistance gene, then we can hack away at that. We can, all right, here's another plant that's missing some of those, but it's still resistant. Okay, I like that plant. And then here's another plant that's missing some more of those markers. I like this one. And we can maintain that resistance gene. And in the end, we can use this as a selection tool in our breeding program that one of my goals is to breed virus-resistant plants. Well, I can put only virus-resistant plants out in the field and try to select the best ones there versus putting a lot of resistant and susceptible plants out there, inoculating them with virus, and then going and seeing which ones are best among those that are resistant, which ones are the best for fruit quality characteristics. It makes my process a lot more
2: efficient, if you will. Yeah, well, let, let me um, just kind of reiterate for those who aren't familiar with the whole process is that when we're saying a DNA marker, we're talking about a small piece of DNA or a region of the DNA in the genome that we can amplify using polymerase chain reaction, which is that process where you can you know, find a criminal and match them to a hair fiber. We're able to amplify specific pieces of DNA that when they can or maybe can't be amplified tend to associate very strongly with a specific trait, meaning that if you can amplify that little region of DNA, you're likely to have this trait of interest. And what this means is that someone like Sam can screen seedlings rather than have to grow the plant and actually look at it to guess if that plant will have a higher likelihood of carrying that disease resistance trait. Mm-hmm. So this is where marker-assisted breeding has really accelerated the process. And while not really, uh, while, while a different type of biotechnology is one way where biotech does influence the breeding process.
1: Yeah, and it's a great help to us. Um, we're talking about virus resistance in this case. Another example that I'm really happy to have molecular markers for would be nematode resistance. And so this is resistance to those little tiny worms in the soil that infect the plant's roots. It can cause a great deal of damage down there. And if I were to screen plants for resistance to nematodes, I would be out there digging up all my plants in the field. I'm, I'm very happy to have a marker that's linked To nematode resistance in that case.
2: Well, you know, the mistake I made today, Sam, was I jumped ahead to your breeding program and talking about what we're interested in in terms of priorities here in Florida. And I really skimmed over some important stuff. And maybe we go a little bit backwards to go forwards. Talk about um, a little bit about tomato domestication and breeding in the modern times because we. We hear all this talk about heirlooms and, oh, these are heirlooms going back thousands of years. And uh, where, where are they really from? And what's kind of the story with heirloom varieties? Yeah, so
1: I guess heirlooms, you could say, are modern tomato varieties that aren't quite so modern. They're way beyond the domestication process, but we've done a lot of breeding since then. And a lot of it has to do with resistance to diseases and pests and things like that. So, if we start to trace that domestication process that began in the Andean region of South America, then it moved to Mesoamerica, and then uh, these plants got, or these seeds got taken over to the old world, um, to Italy. That's our, our earliest record of tomatoes being grown in, uh, in the old world, is in Italy in 1554. And so this is a guy named Pierre Andrea Mattioli um, who documented this. And so tomatoes were being grown and eaten then by the mid-1500s. And there was breeding going on there to get to that point, right? And then it wasn't until um, around the 1800s or so that people brought tomatoes back to the New World, right? And even Thomas Jefferson, I guess this is before 1800, Thomas Jefferson described tomatoes being grown in Virginia, around 1781 right and so those type of tomatoes um, anything you found now from that age would be an heirloom right and so some of the oldest varieties that were developed by breeders would be called heirlooms but i think technically anything over 25 or 30 years is also considered an heirloom so we're talking about the mid 1900s as well so heirlooms would encompass a whole lot there it's not just the ancient stuff it's just the older varieties. And most of the time, these are not hybrid varieties. These are things that you that self-pollinate and you can save seed on and you get the same thing that you started with.
2: Right. And, and along that line, it's interesting to note that a lot of people, I guess back in the 1700s, 1800s, were really opposed to eating tomatoes because they were from the nightshade group, night, nightshade family. And so how much truth to, is there to that? And what are some of the other relatives of tomato we normally don't think about? Well, yeah, there's,
1: there's been a whole lot of people that have been opposed to them for those reasons because of uh, the toxic uh, properties of many of the nightshade relatives. Um, as far as the ones that we consume, you've got uh, tomato, potato, eggplant, peppers. Um, you also got tobacco, which uh, I guess we wouldn't think of as a very positive one, but those are the type members of this family here and obviously we're eating lots of french fries every year we're eating uh, lots of peppers as well so there may be some individuals that might be allergic to um, to plants in this family, but then you also get the same thing with peanuts even more so so um, no it's nothing nothing about these crops in particular I think um, that would be other nightshade relatives.
2: So going forward in fresh tomato breeding, what are some of the big things that we hope to see either from you or maybe nationwide or worldwide? What are some of the big objectives that uh, breeders are seeking to accomplish?
1: Well, overall, the breeders are trying to get tomato varieties that are more productive and produce more marketable yields. And so if you go back to some of the earlier breeding efforts um, and you compare varieties that came out of these with those heirlooms one of the first things you would see is that these varieties aren't indeterminate anymore all right we got away from for the most part for field production we got away from those indeterminate plants we started growing determinate plants they they grow up to a point and then they stop and they finish their life cycle they put a lot more fruit on per size of the plant as opposed to those indeterminate vines that just keep growing and growing and growing Now, I would qualify that and say that I'm talking about field production, where you have a limited season. Um, In contrast, you look at varieties intended for greenhouse production. For a long season, they grow primarily indeterminate varieties there. It's a longer season. But um, one of the first things you would see for field varieties would be those determinate varieties. And then you've got to be able to get the fruit to market. So breeders incorporated higher levels of fruit firmness, and this actually is great. I mean, unlike what a home gardener might do in their backyard, go out and pick some fruit, and all they have to do is carry it inside. These fruit have to be picked. They have to be taken to trucks. They have to be washed. They have to be shipped, boxed. Uh, there's a lot of rigor there. You've got to have fruit that are firm enough. And so, I mean, nobody wants to buy a tomato that's all bruised up in the supermarket. It's got to be firm enough. And that was, one of the, that was a huge accomplishment. For breeding it even allowed growers to start producing tomatoes uh, vine ripe or harvesting tomatoes that are vine ripe and we're able to start getting away more so from that mature green system we still do that here in florida and in some other areas but many places in the world it's all a vine ripe industry can right? you
2: speak a little bit to mechanical harvesting
1: yeah sure um, so this breeding in these levels of improved fruit firmness also had a huge impact in the mid uh, mid 1900s. All right, and this uh, tomato breeder named Jack Hanna uh, decided to really pursue this. To Developed tomatoes that had a high concentration of fruit set combined with a high level of fruit firmness, and basically in a matter of a couple of decades the system of producing processing tomatoes uh, changed completely. So in the, in the 1950s, all processing tomatoes were picked by hand. By the 1970s, none of the processing tomatoes were picked by hand. They were amenable to mechanical harvest. Um, this breeder developed varieties that could be picked mechanically. A machine could get the fruit off of the plant without stems. The fruit were firm enough to endure this rigor of mechanical harvest. And uh, the harvesters were developed also by ag engineers. And it's an incredible process. It changed everything. And that's why we're able to buy pasta sauce and diced tomatoes and things like this now uh, for such low cost. Um, It would look very differently if these were all hand harvested. So really trying to get tomato varieties that can be grown and harvested more efficiently, more economically. That's our ultimate goal of all tomato breeders there, whether they're intended for hand harvest or machine harvest. Other things that growers, that breeders are looking for would be resistance to nematodes. I mentioned that a minute ago. Nematodes are a big problem all around the world, uh, resistance to all these different fungal, bacterial, and viral diseases. Um, tomatoes are notoriously susceptible to diseases. That's one of the advantages that most uh, modern varieties have over heirloom varieties is there's a better disease resistance package. You can buy tomatoes now that are resistant to late blight, resistant to fusarium wilt, resistant to tomato spotted wilt, different diseases that you might see in a garden or something, or even in a production field that those heirlooms wouldn't really have.
2: So Sam, if there was a role for transgenics in tomato, at least in Florida, where do you see some potential applications?
1: I think I would see that in the areas that are the most challenging to breed for traditionally. And so um, I could think of a couple. One that immediately comes to my mind is um, that bacterial disease that I mentioned before, bacterial spot. And the reason that's on my mind is because I spent years while I was doing my Ph.D. studies trying to breed conventional resistance, trying to get resistance gene out of wild species into cultivated tomato. Um, my advisor at the time, Dr. Jay Scott, actually just retired uh, today. Today is his last day um, before he goes into retirement. He spent his whole career breeding for resistance to bacterial spot. And after all these years, his 34 years, and my past 11 years here in the program breeding conventionally, we've come up with essentially nothing. Um, we've got some genes that help. We've got nothing that eliminates this disease. Um, the yield the yield penalty that this disease can cause when we get a lot of it, I mean, we could really reduce yields by 50%. We see that. We've got data that supports that. And we've got data that shows that if we were to eliminate this disease, we could double our yields at times of the year when it's a big problem. Uh, that would probably be one of the first areas I would like to see targeted um, with a transgenic approach.
2: And if, and if anybody wanted to learn more about your breeding program or other aspects of tomato breeding, it, do, is there a website you can direct them to, or are you present in social media? Uh, t- yeah, I would
1: say um, to learn a little bit about this uh, breeding program at University of Florida, you could visit the Gulf Coast Research and Education Center website. That would be gcrac.ifas.ufl.edu. And there's links there. You can find uh, a little bit about our breeding program, a little bit about the history of it, the goals of it, and some of the latest developments there as well. Okay, so
2: Dr. Sam Hutton, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about tomato breeding, and we'll follow up with you again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Sure thing, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. And that was Dr. Sam Hutton joining us from the Gulf Coast Research and Education Center down at University of Florida, uh, two hours south of where I live, um, but uh, a member of the faculty here at University of Florida. Hi, everybody. It's me, Kevin, and I just wanted to say thank you for all the kind words and wonderful thoughts you share with me during the last few weeks. It's been a strange mix of horror, rage, and victory, and certainly strange waters for me as I try to navigate really a trying professional scenario. My family, colleagues, friends, and total strangers have been truly wonderful lights in my life. So thank you for your patience, advice, and guidance. The exciting news is that in August you were at least one of 13,000 downloads, which I can't understand. Uh, I record this in my home office, and I enjoy a conversation with someone I really wanted to talk to anyway. I've had zero expectations from publishing this podcast, and the response is overwhelming and touching. As a scientist and teacher, the greatest compliment is that somebody is listening and that somebody is learning, and this vehicle has turned out to be fulfilling, but I look forward to every single episode and what's coming up in the next week. So how can you make it better? Tell a friend, write a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and send me your suggestions. The next few weeks are coming together nicely, and there'll be some wonderful episodes coming up soon. So once again, thank you for listening, and thank you for promoting the Talking Biotech podcast. Okay, and welcome back to Talking Biotech as we go into the second part of today's uh, session. And today we're very fortunate to have with us Dr. Diana Horvath. And uh, Dr. Horvath is with the Two Blades Foundation, which is up in Evanston, Illinois. She's the president of the organization. And uh, she's here to talk to us today about a solution to antimicrobial treatments in tomatoes using a biotech solution. So welcome aboard, Diana
3: thanks so much for having me kevin uh, it 's a pleasure to be here, and I just wanted to take a quick shout out to thank you for being a spokesperson on behalf of all of us scientists and talking about these issues, especially when it 's been made so difficult for you. We all appreciate that
2: well thank you very much that's very kind it's it's it 's a pleasure and and it's a, it's this kind of thing that really uh really keeps me going because we're learning so much by talking to the experts. And I think this kind of vehicle really helps all of us because we're able to uh, show that this isn't just, you know, big companies uh, creating more crops for a giant field, that this is a, something that can help our environment. And this, this is a great subject, and I'm so excited about today's talk. And it started with uh, last uh, the session before this. In, in the episode, we talked to Sam Hutton, who you know very well. And Sam talked to us about, uh, I asked him, if you have one trait that you could have as a transgenic trait, what would that be? And he said there'd be a treatment for the bacterial diseases like Xanthomonas that cause the uh, such huge losses in tomato that there's no easy breeding solution. And that's what brought me to you. And so your paper from 2012 and PLOS uh, talks about your solution. And could you introduce us a little bit to what BS2 is and how, um, and just kind of an overarching uh, introduction to what this gene does.
3: Certainly. So it's right, Sam has hit on what has been the biggest uh Most chronic problem of the Florida tomato industry in particular, but also to tomato production around the globe. Anywhere where you are growing tomatoes, as you generally do, in warm temperatures and in humid environments, this is the perfect environment for bacteria to grow. In particular, these bacteria, Xanthomonas species, uh, uh, really thrive in that environment. So it's very difficult. And although other diseases from time to time may pop up and cause issues, by and large, this is the main recurring disease of tomatoes and peppers and has been for 60-plus years. And so the industry has been trying to come up with solutions. Uh, typically, these have involved uh, agrochemicals, sometimes antibiotics directly. Uh, most often, though, the, usually that uh, breaks down fairly quickly in the field, Um But most often, it's copper and copper fungicides are widely used. And it's actually well known that those are ineffective to stop the bacteria growing on tomato. And yet, growers will do that because they don't want to do nothing, and it's relatively inexpensive. So the practice persists, even though it's ineffective. And in fact, it's really not good for the environment because copper accumulates in uh, the the uh, soils and in the water system, and is concentrated, in fact, in packhouses, packing tomato fruits, the, the wastewater. Um, it's been shown in a study from the University of Florida that uh, you get an accumulation of copper in that wastewater, and then you have to do something with that wastewater, treated before you can put it back into the environment.
2: Yeah, so it's almost a hazardous waste. You're generating, essentially, a heavy metal concentrate by processing or by washing, I should say, and packing tomatoes. Is that kind of where they went with the paper?
3: Yes. Yes, in fact, it is. And it's not just tomatoes. Of course, tomato is uh, a big industry in Florida, but also citrus has bacterial diseases that uh, prompt the use of copper compounds as well. So you have both of those are big industries in Florida and do represent an issue,
2: and, and you represent uh, Two Blades Foundation, and this is something that I, I think is really important to point out before we go much more into the science. Can you tell us a little bit about Two Blades and uh, and like how many people are involved? And you know, is, is this a giant mega corporation, uh, multinational uh, effort?
3: I'm smiling as you say that uh, because we're a teeny tiny organization. Quite the opposite. Uh, we have four of us on the foundation side. Uh, there's Roger Friedman, who's the man behind Two Blades, the idea of Two Blades, and had uh, has been active in long-term vision of plant science in uh, many aspects through the years. And he had the idea to focus on durable disease resistance for crops because the science was evolving very quickly, and yet there has been such an absence of uh, application that reaches the market in this area uh, really it 's it 's a difficult area to keep up with diseases because they do change, and yet plant science has developed tremendously in the past 20 years in, term of, in terms of gen- genomic tools and so forth, that now really there's an abundance of information and means to bring this into application, and that's really what Blades sees its role as. So Roger has been the driver uh, behind the concept of it, and and there's Lynn Ruber and myself uh, who run programs in different areas, and uh, Peter Vanessa is a group leader in a laboratory that Two Blades has which is embedded within the Sainsbury Laboratory in Norwich, UK. The Sainsbury Laboratory is a fundamental research laboratory, really an outstanding laboratory, for understanding plant-pathogen interaction. So it's a really fantastic location uh, for us to have a group. Uh, because we get the benefit of the other very knowledgeable group leaders who are there and and really experts in this field to help us drive our programs. And so between us, we work on several different uh, uh, products uh, and, and problems, disease problems, in particular to set it up as a not-for-profit organization. And we find that's really a key for us in how we work because we're, not in it for the bottom line for the profit. We're in it really for the bottom line of getting good solutions to these problems out into practical use.
2: I think you could have no better leading uh, effort, at least in in terms of a transgenic product. This is a gene that confers resistance to tomato that actually comes from pepper. So did they identify a pepper cultivar or identify this gene in pepper and then uh, use this as a breeding tool in pepper? But you can't cross a tomato and a pepper or how did you start to identify this gene and when did, was that, uh, uh, mobilized into tomato?
3: Yes, that's right. So the gene comes from pepper, which is a close relative of tomato, but it's not interfertile. So you can't cross it in directly. Uh, so it was undertaken actually in 1992, if you can believe it, we've been trying to, uh, get this gene, pulled out and into use, Uh, but that was when the initial cloning work was undertaken, and uh, it turns out that there was a very large intron in the gene, which made it challenging to identify, but um, the gene itself has been used in pepper extensively. Most cultivars of pepper have the BS2 gene in it, which is kind of a a key point I'd like to make, because it means that anybody who eats a pepper is eating the BS2 protein. It's a, a natural protein that is in pepper, and also in hot pepper. It's been bred into hot peppers as well. And so uh, in the laboratory of Brian Staskiewicz, they pursued cloning of this gene and pulled it out after uh, considerable effort, and uh, from there they did initial greenhouse studies to show that the resistance was conferred into tomato when that was put in transgenically. And then Two Blades really kind of got involved in a much more active way in around 2006, where we began a series of field trials in Florida, uh, initially testing it in the background that Brian had put it in, which was a California tomato, as he's based in California, and that was handy. Uh, And it was really not well adapted to the Florida growing environment. But that paper you referred to in PLOS One, that was where we published a lot of those results in that background known as bf36
2: yeah and, the, and that particular line is really sensitive to bacterial issues is that right
3: that's right yeah so not only it's not super uh comfortable in the florida heat but it's quite sensitive uh to bacteria as well uh, however when you put the bs2 gene in uh, it looks fantastic uh, it doesn't show disease and uh, it improves yields was the surprising thing that we found that it improved yields so much actually we expected or we hoped that we would see some improvement since now you're ending the disease and so that should give a benefit to the plant but what we've consistently seen is that the yield increases are essentially doubled
2: that that's really good because if you were to get no yield increase but didn't have to apply a product, saving money for farmers and saving uh, impact on the environment, that would have been a home run. And now you not just uh, are in a position where you're putting in fewer inputs, you're also seeing that translate to significant yield increases that that when I looked at the paper, I think in some places you had something like 11-fold increase in in tomatoes uh, over the controls. And so um, is there any other non-benefit? So do you see any quality loss or other issues associated with the gene?
3: We have not. We so we have not completed all the data collection that would be required to uh, achieve regulatory approvals. So I don't want to say we've never hit a snag because we haven't completed all the work. But for everything we've done to date, there's never been a problem. Uh, the plants are healthy. Um, depending on the disease severity, you might see some range in the yield impact. So generally, the more disease, the better the improvement, of course, with BS2. If there's a season where the disease the disease pressure is not so high, for example, if it's a drier or cooler season, then you might not see as much of an impact. But overall, there hasn't been any sort of negative phenotype associated with BS2.
2: And, and what kind of gene is BS2?
3: Great question. Bs2 is a member of the so-called NLR genes uh, for uh, uh, NBS-LRR uh, family of plant genes, which are basically the plant's immune system, disease resistance genes. Um, and this family is very widespread in plants, uh, and there are also uh, similar proteins in animals. Um, but within plants, there are usually hundreds of these kinds of genes. It's the most one of I think possibly the most common uh, gene in plants, so it's nothing very out of the ordinary. All plants have these uh, to begin with. So moving this one from a pepper uh, into a tomato is a fairly minor modification.
2: And is there any evidence from wild tomato that such similar mechanisms take place that maybe could be bred in if if you had uh, the uh, time and resources?
3: So that's a very interesting question from the scientific point of view. There is a BS2-like gene in tomato, but it's changed in several positions of the sequence. And in theory, one could go through and try to revert that one to be more like the pepper gene and hence maybe make it active in tomato. Uh, And and one could do that. uh, And perhaps that might be considered more natural. But I think this is where we must stop and realize that even though that might be, I don't know, perhaps less of a concern to to some consumers, uh, perhaps, it doesn't make it any safer or easier in the fact that we can simply, by a straightforward transgenic method, put the pepper gene in, and it works very effectively. I think that's really the goal. And so we haven't bothered to go through that additional effort of trying to do it in that other way.
2: Well, what about the uh, folks who will say, well, you don't even need to use a transgene, just use traditional breeding and, uh, you know, breed in that BS2 like gene and that'll be good enough? Or well, why can't we use a traditional breeding approach?
3: Well, certainly this has been an area of active research for many years. In fact, our collaborator, Jay Scott, who's just retired from the University of Florida, uh, spent a good chunk of his career uh, trying to develop a uh, bacterial spot resistance in tomato. It's clearly an important goal for the industry and he's come close at times. Uh, but what happens is periodically the races of this bacteria change in the state. And when they do, they change what's known as effectors and effectors are parts of the bacterium that the bacterium inserts into the plant to interfere with the immune responses. And so if you, try to target resistance to stop one bacteria, it can evolve and overcome that resistance. And that's what's happened in several cases, that the previous predominant race in in, uh, Florida, which was tomato race three, uh, Jay had some resistances too, and he was just about to deploy those when a new race evolved, known now as race four, that came in and, and overcame that. So the conventional breeding approaches have tried to deliver, but so far there's not a resistant conventional tomato on the market that's effective against their current race.
2: And, and that's an important point maybe for listeners who don't know much about plant breeding or the pathologies associated with our uh, our field situations is that here you can have uh, a plant that takes years and years to breed, that has really good fruit quality, that seems to do well in the field, but this thing is under constant insult from bacteria and fungus 24 hours a day with organisms that are doubling every you know 20 minutes to an hour. And the chances of a mutation overcoming your particular genetic package that protects it uh, is really, really high. And But how, how do we know that that won't happen with the BS2 gene?
3: That's, of course, a critical question. And in a sense, it will. Uh, in fact, that's what happened in PEPPER is that BS2, uh, when it was bred in and widely used in PEPPER... There were strains of Xanthomonas, uh, which are different on pepper than they are on tomato generally, uh, that did evolve that. Um, However, they can't completely overcome BS2. Usually, uh, the populations of bacteria are a mixture, and some of them retain sensitivity. But within pepper breeding, they have continued to pursue other resistances, uh, and uh, it might be interesting to come back to. But one thing that's a bit different about BS2... Uh, is that the protein itself, this resistance protein, as other uh, resistance proteins, they hone in on a on a part of the bacteria. They recognize that. And the thing that's recognized by BS2, uh, this effector, which is, uh, they usually have paired names, so it's called AVRBS2. In in bacteria, AVRBS2, unlike other effectors, it's maintained very much as it is it's highly conserved and it's difficult which means it's telling you that the bacterium can't change it too much it needs that function it can't evolve it to be something different or to lose it entirely like it can with some other effectors that maybe don't have a critical function so it tells us that avrbs2 is playing an important part in the life cycle of the bacterium so that means we have a better chance of durability with bs2 uh for uh, the bacterium not to be able to overcome it. But that being said, Two Blades is very much committed to durability of disease resistance. And really the approach that we take there, just as we do in human medicine, is not to rely on a single resistance or a single uh, resistance gene in this case. Uh, Sometimes the terms can be used interchangeably for different things. So I just want to be clear that is, we want to stack BS2 with other resistances to fortify it, and we are working on that.
2: And it looks, um, just to give kind of an idea, I'll show. There's a picture on the uh, lead page of today's podcast that shows the uh, pic- shows the tomatoes with and without the transgene from the PLOS article. And I know that I've stood in the field looking at these where it isn't just enough to rely on the inoculum that comes naturally. As you say, it can sometimes be absent and dry and, and, uh, cool year. But in uh, these hot, wet years, uh, Dr. Hutton actually uh, applies Xanthomonas to the plants. He actually is giving them an infection and uh, with a rather high titer of the of the pathogen. And these plants almost appear, I mean, I mean, you can't find any symptoms. It's pretty amazing how well it works.
3: This is true. Yeah, it, it really is pretty incredible. People who see it in the field uh, are usually quite taken back. I I do want to be clear that we have had occasions where we can find bacteria that have evolved to overcome BS2. Now, these are usually very localized, and the interesting observation is you can have a line with BS2 uh, plants immediately adjacent to plants without BS2, And, and you might see that you have a focus of bacteria now growing on bs2 they won't go to that plant immediately next to it that doesn't even have bs2 so these bacteria really they're impaired they can't lose or modify avrbs2 and and be very successful bacteria that's what we see um and when we do see when we have seen this it doesn't come back it doesn't permanently shift the population of bacteria in the field to now overcome bs2 uh it's as you say you have a lot of Growing of bacteria in the field, and so by natural, um, you know, error prone uh, DNA replication, you you get natural mutations coming, and some of those could be in AVRBS2 and, and give them a break. So, you do have populations that can spontaneously appear like that from time to time. Uh, so, we're, we're very conscious of not. Destroying the value of Bs2, we see disease resistance genes as a precious natural resource that we want to preserve, and as they say, bolster with other resistances. So we are actively working on bringing in other resistances to make sure that Bs2 can continue to function and be useful in the field. But it is the you know the the process of evolution. There is that driving force uh, that the bacteria will try to evolve to overcome. Yeah,
2: that's true. And, and I think that that's really an excellent sobering point that you make that, you know, certainly those of us in science, we know going in that any mechanism we propose for herbicide or insect or, you know, uh, microbe resistance is only being set up to fail in the long term because evolution is such a powerful driver to push life around our best efforts and it doesn't mean we should stop it means that we should be doing uh, this more aggressively and using more varied mechanisms of resistance and and I look at your product and this I look at these plants in the field and I I can't help but think that organic farmers should love this and has there been any discussion with using this in organic contexts even or even you know showing this to organic groups and saying look what you could do to grow tomatoes because of the tremendous inputs they need to apply to grow tomatoes organically.
3: No, there hasn't. It's a really interesting point. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I I think it's just been uh, a matter, of course, that organic farmers have been more opposed to GM technologies in general, even though, in in a sense, GM technologies are really very green that way and and pro-environment in that they can... uh, allow farmers to grow without copper compounds in this particular case. And copper is an organic um, pesticide that, that is certified for organic production. Uh, and uh, so this would be an advantage, of course, to organic farmers. But no, that, that discussion really hasn't taken place.
2: Yeah, and that, that's one that maybe that's a way to get this on their radar. It, it's such a, if you really are concerned about the environmental impacts of farming, and that's your driver. Uh, as you know as as an organic farmer uh, keeping six pounds per acre of copper you know out of a field that's you know a, 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 a story above the water table you know that's not such a bad thing and uh, and this seems to be one of these uh, breakthrough kind of applications where somebody who really is thinking about this scientifically would be excited about this particular product. So.
3: One would hope so in fact it's a bit of an irony, I think, that copper, though it's an organic uh, pesticide and, and approved for organic use, it's actually amongst the worst of those um, crop protection compounds that are used compared from organic to synthetic and so forth in terms of its environmental impact quotient, which uh, is... a uh, a way to summarize the total impact that a crop protection compound can have on people who apply the compounds or eat them or on the environment itself, on insects, waterways, and so forth. It, there's, it's summarized in this uh, term known as the environmental impact quotient. And copper has about the highest that you can have. Uh, and it's, uh, as I say, an irony because some man-made alternatives have very low impact and yet the copper is considered by organic farmers as being better for the environment. I think it is something to consider that uh, a GM technology could be better.
2: So Diana, I know a lot of the solutions we come up with are um, look very good in the field but then find themselves in a position with an industry that may not share the same enthusiasm and what has been the reaction so far?
3: Well, it's been mixed. We have some growers in Florida who uh, are forward-looking and supportive of the concept. Uh, We have had discussions with the industry sort of as a collective, and that's been a mixed response, and in fact... uh, because some are more concerned that if they go this route and adopt or support a transgenic approach to this problem, uh, that then they're going to have difficulties selling their tomatoes. And, and that's, of course, an understandable position. You, you don't want to jeopardize your market or lose your customers. Um, but the impact of that is that things have stalled a bit. We haven't really been able to move Uh, a a tomato with BS2 forward to the extent that we would like. Uh, And being a small foundation, we can't really manage to push it all the way out ourselves, or we certainly wouldn't want to if there was not an industry there that wanted to take it up. Uh, So uh, that has had a bit of uh, a slowing effect on our process, though we still are optimistic that we can come up with other means, uh, potentially to deliver this. So we do think there is an important value uh, and it might be a combination of demonstrating that there is some consumer interest. Uh, Maybe that would be enough for growers to adopt it Um, or perhaps to separate this tomato from the general tomato uh, pool so that it's clearly differentiated and and nobody has to be worried about, uh, you know, what's going on with all of Florida tomatoes. You could clearly differentiate uh, one from the other, and, and possibly CBS2, as we're talking about, as sort of a greener tomato. That is, it has these environmental benefits.
2: Are there other examples of products in the pipeline that Two Blades is uh, moving forward?
3: Currently, uh, rust is a major problem on soybean, and, and that's also a case where it's currently controlled by fungicides at a billion dollar market in terms of fungicide application. And so to get rid of those compounds would be terrific. Uh, we also have a very big program in wheat because we're very concerned about the cereal rests, which threaten world wheat supply. And we've had a couple of programs in citrus looking at citrus screening and citrus canker. Uh, and currently we have a program in cassava because one of our main outputs is to not only help all agriculture but we also really are interested in helping subsistence agriculture uh, and delivering products for that use and so uh, although wheat is grown around the world even in a subsistence basis uh, cassava is 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 one that is really only grown as a subsistence product and we'd be doing more things if we were bigger and had more resources but uh, those are the things we're focusing on now.
2: And so if people wanted to learn more about the BS2 Tomato or Two Blades Foundation, uh, where would they find more information?
3: They can visit our website at twoblades.org.
2: Okay, nice and easy. Okay, well, Dr. Diana Horvath, thank you so much for spending the time with us today and talking about this new tool that could make a big difference going forward in the tomato industry.
3: Thank you so much, Kevin.
2: And thank you very much to Dr. Horvath and Dr. Hutton, uh, two experts in tomatoes that teach us something about some uh, ways that traditional breeding and biotechnology can complementary help solve some of the major problems and have some wonderful environmental impacts. And that's what this is all about. How do we use the best tools available in ways that can help the environment, help farmers, help consumers, and maybe even extend to the needy who could really use? Technology. So, my name is Kevin Fulta. We're celebrating about 14,000 downloads in the month of August 2015, which blows me away. Uh, But that's a very exciting number and really shows that maybe we are using this uh, little enterprise to actually uh, influence some thoughts and some thinking in this particular area where it's desperately needed. So, thank you so much for listening again, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Talking Biotech. Thank you
0: for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
2: Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider
0: audience with science. dot a p p